Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing Professor Stuart Russell. Stuart Russell is a professor of computer science and the Smith Zeta Professor in Engineering at UC Berkeley, as well as an honorary fellow at Wadham College, Oxford. Professor Russell is the co-author with Peter Norvig of the popular and universally acclaimed textbook, Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach. He is the founder and head of Berkeley's Center for Human-Compatible Artificial Intelligence, and recently authored the book, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence, and the Problem of Control. He has also served as co-chair on the World Economic Forum's Council on AI and Robotics. This was an incredibly fun episode for me. It was fascinating to speak to somebody who's been in the field for so long. If you've followed Russell's work recently, then you've probably heard plenty about his new book, Human Compatible, that I mentioned earlier. I chose to take this interview in a rather different direction and query him about his earlier work. We went into some topics like rationality, meta-reasoning, and how he's thought about the field over time. This turned out to be a lot more like a traditional interview than a conversation, because I think he just had so much to say, and I was certainly listening with rapt attention. I hope you'll enjoy his words and the topics we covered just as much as I did. And if you do find yourself interested in the topics about human compatibility that we covered just a taste of at the end, then he has plenty of other interviews, as well as his book, of course, that you can dive into for more information. Finally, if you haven't already, you should go ahead and subscribe to The Gradient on Substack. You'll get this podcast, as well as our newsletters and articles sent directly to your email. And if you've been enjoying the show, it would be wonderful if you would leave us a kind review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. And now, without further ado, Stuart Russell. Professor Russell, I expect your answer to this question is going to be fairly interesting, given that out of all the guests we have, I think you're somebody who has thought about this question of what is AI supposed to be doing? What is this field all about anyway? More so than many of the guests we've had. So still to give you kind of the the basic question we ask everyone at the beginning of these interviews, how did you get into AI? Uh, so I would say as soon as I understood what a programmable object was, uh, I wanted to make it intelligent. Um, the first programmable object I got my hands on was the Cambridge Sinclair Scientific, uh, which is a uh, calculator that allowed you to write programs and execute them. Um, but the programs could be a maximum of 36 keystrokes. <laughs> not even a tweet. Uh, and so it was sort of hard to write a lot of AI programs using that. Um, and then 
when I was, so I was, that was when I was 12, I think when I was 14, I started doing an A-level in computing um, at a college near my school. And um, they had a real computer, an IBM 1130. So then I started writing programs that would learn to play uh, tic-tac-toe by themselves. So a sort of reinforcement learning thing. Um, bought the few AI books that existed at that time, uh, including Nils Nilsson's uh, book on learning and problem solving and um, uh, Bertram Raphael's Thinking Computer and a few other. Um, and then the following year, I got access to the, the giant supercomputer at Imperial College. So I would <laughs> take the bus every Wednesday with all my punch cards and uh, wrote a big chess program. So um, so I was already quite interested. I used to read a lot of science fiction uh, when I was young as well. Uh, so that contributed, I think. Um, but I think at that point, my professional intention was to be a theoretical physicist. And I always thought of AI as something you could do as a hobby. Um, because it wasn't, you know, in, in the universities at that time in the UK, there was almost nothing happening. Um, so, uh, but I found out you could do a PhD in it. And eventually I switched from physics to computer science at Stanford. Um, but it always seemed to me that the, the, those are the sort of two most important questions. How does the mind work and how does the universe work? Yeah. It seems it, like uh, most of how the universe works has already worked out. Uh, <laughs> so there's more scope in the other question. It, it does seem like uh, many great minds have identified those as the two major problems. The big problem with the cosmos and then the problem we have within our own minds. It also does seem like a lot of people transition over from the physics world to the AI world, which I find interesting, but also also makes a lot of sense. There are many big problems to be solved on both sides, perhaps some parallels between the two. One thing I'd love to know is when you were first getting into AI, eventually you you wrote what is considered the textbook, AI a modern approach. And one thing that I think is important to observe about that is just the foundation that it builds for understanding how AI systems work. And when we talk about AI systems today, kind of in the modern deep learning era, we're more talking about a machine learning algorithm. But if I jump back in time a little bit, look at some of your papers from preceding decades, things like that, there is much more this notion of, of an agent who is acting and interacting with the world. When you were first getting your start, doing your PhD, writing your thesis, what was the historical perspective at the time? How were people thinking about what AI is? What is it we're trying to create? Um, so I want to back up a little bit. So we are still working on agents, right? So, and learning has always been the, I think the primary method by, by which we expect agents to be constructed. You know, and that goes back to Turing in 1950, at least. Um, and of course, you know, philosophers of science and psychologists 
all say, yeah, of course, every, you know, everything comes from our senses and all that stuff. Um, so if I go back to 80, you know, the, the 1980s when I did my PhD, 82 to 86, um, I, I would say there wasn't a very clear idea of what is an AI system. Um, this idea of agents was discussed in certain groups, including uh, my advisor's group, Mike Genesereth, uh, actually wrote a textbook. It is a, it's a logic-based textbook, but um, it puts the idea of agents front and center uh, and then talks about how you would build a, a logical agent. And actually, he and I used to build some logical agents. Um, so, um, but that wasn't widely accepted. You know, the whole expert system uh, era was characterized by the idea that we're sort of building consulting systems, systems that you ask questions of and they give you answers. And, um, you know, in, in, of course, that's a degenerate type of agent. Um, but if you, you, but it's, you know, you can kind of ignore the agent status of it altogether. Um, if you say, okay, well, it's, it's supposed to give me correct answers to the questions uh, that I give it. Um, but even then, you know, some people, so for example, Bob Walensky, who was a faculty member at Berkeley, um, was pointing out that uh, even a question answering system actually needs to take an agent stance. In other words, it, it needs to think about what are its objectives and what are the effects of uh, its actions, where its actions are giving answers to questions. You know, and his favorite example was you know, if you, the human, say, you know, how do I make more space in my file system? You know, the wrong answer is, well, you just type rm star, right? even though that's correct, right? But it's it's unhelpful to the user, and giving that answer will have a bad effect. And uh, you know, other people were thinking about this in terms of medical diagnosis, uh, right? You don't you don't want to give the most likely diagnosis. Um, because often the most likely diagnosis is there's nothing wrong with you, uh, even though you have a 32% chance of brain cancer uh, and 58% and so on. So it's, um, it, even if you're building consulting systems, you should think of them as agents. Um, and as I started teaching the AI course at Berkeley, starting in 86, um, this just became more and more clear that it was the right way to tie together all the work that was going on in AI, whether it was, you know, a natural language, uh, you know, you have to think about uh, a, a language using entity as an as an agent, right? And this is something that Wittgenstein and Austin and Searle and various other philosophers had talked about, uh, you know, speech acts um, and so on, uh, rather than, you know, speech as communicating facts or uh, answering questions. And so, um, you know, and at that time also in the, in the late eighties, um, Pearl was pushing on parabolistic, uh, substrate for AI and, and, uh, reminding people about decision theory and utility theory and so on, which I'd say wasn't typically taught in any AI course, uh, and, um, and so that really helped because then you could, 
you know, you could tie that back to planning and then you could start to put all the, all the work in AI into a single framework. So, so that's how that emerged. Um, I think to some extent now with a lot of these deep learning systems, we've gone back to the sort of AI, AI system as consultant, you know, where you, where you just, you think of it as a, um, uh, an interface that you could put questions into or images and get back answers. So again, it's the degenerate agent and, and almost nobody um, is thinking about it as, as an agent in the way they should. Um, you know, so so the, the language models are not doing any kind of speech act theory or pragmatics, right? Um, and that's really unfortunate. I think, I think that's a mistake. But obviously, you know, the, the people who are out there wanting to do things in the real world, the self-driving car uh, projects, agricultural robots, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, they're all having to think about agents and uh, what the objectives of the agent should be and how does it model the external world and all, all the rest of it. That's a that's a very good call out to start with of how the way the way I kind of phrased in my question to you was not really taking into account yes perhaps even the deep learning systems of today which we might perceive more as utilities things we consult an API I plug into in order to feed some text and ask it to answer a question or generate more text right but I mean you know you think about just simple examples like you know you. You ask it, okay, what's what's the super user password? <laughs> Is it going to tell you? <laughs> I hope not. Right. Indeed. Um, yeah, and there's there's something interesting to think about when it comes to looking at today's language models from that perspective and this whole agency idea of interacting with the world, which I'd like to get to in a little bit, but maybe staying back with some of these more foundational questions in terms of the foundations of what AI is, what it's supposed to be, some of your early work looked at the notions of rationality in AI systems. And I believe that some of the, as you were kind of mentioning, some of the ideas that AI took away were grafted over from economics, these theories of people being more or less rational agents. You kind of moved that over into this theory of bounded optimality. You also eventually looked at things like meta reasoning. Could you tell me a little bit about what you were thinking about at that time, those particular developments in your own work, what you were responding to? Um, so again, this was something that was already in the air. Uh, even when I was a grad student, there was a, a rational agents discussion group um, with people like Michael Bratman and Martha Pollock and uh, not sure if I remember anybody else, but um, the, the drawbacks of the perfectly rational agent model, which, I mean, to be, to be completely clear, that was in effect the theoretical framework for AI, right? So if you, uh, if you think about, you know, whether it's McCarthy or Alan Newell, um, the idea was we're going to build an agent that constructs uh, guaranteed perfect plans and then executes them. And then, um, 
you know, in areas like game playing where it was painfully obvious that you couldn't actually do that, well, then you just adopted sort of various ad hoc approximations like, okay, we won't search all the way to the end of the game tree. We'll only search, you know, a quarter of the way to the end, right? And then that'll do something useful. Um, so you take that model of perfect rationality and you sort of chop bits off until it fits into the machine. Um, and that doesn't give you any kind of theoretical framework because all, you'll, all you're left with is, well, you know, so far my chess program beats your chess program. Um, and that's about it. But there's no sense that, okay, this is the right chess program. Um, and so the bounded optimality idea is how could we replace perfect rationality with something that's actually achievable, but is still sort of, you know, theoretically well-defined and, and in some sense, bounded optimality is trivial. It just says, look, you could, you've got a finite machine. Uh, there's only so many programs that could possibly run on it, a large number, but it's a finite number. Um, and some subset of those programs just has better performance than all the others, right? And that's the set that we should be targeting. Those are the bounded optimal programs. And so it makes sense to think of AI as how do we, uh, how do we design these bounded optimal programs? And so it's getting, you know, it has a number of effects on the way you think about the problem. One effect is that you stop thinking about what is the rational action, right? Because in fact, the designer of an AI system doesn't get to control the individual actions. They only get to control the program. And um, a bounded optimal program in any particular circumstance may take a suboptimal action from the point of view of perfect rationality. But if you tried to fix it so it didn't do that, then by definition, it would get worse, right? Because it would start making other suboptimal actions elsewhere and overall its performance will get worse by definition. Um, so it, it tells you that to, to stop trying to think about how an agent should act in any particular circumstance. And that was sort of liberating. And, uh, um, you know, that, so we made some progress on um, some compositional theorems, like how, how could you put together a more complex bounded optimal system out of bounded optimal components that had simpler objectives and you could, you know, chain the objectives together and so on. And so I, I think, um, I think it's still the right approach if what you are thinking about is AI systems that overall have a fixed objective and we'll get to why that's a bad idea. Um, and it, it's been revived recently. Um, so for example, Satinder Singh and Richard Lewis at Michigan and Josh Tenenbaum and Tom Griffiths. And, and so these are all uh, computational cognitive scientists. Uh, are now talking about bounded optimality as the you know the the right theoretical model for understanding uh, cognition and behavior. Um, so so that's interesting and reassuring, I guess, that we weren't completely uh, on the wrong track. Um, but it was you know probably uh, in the last uh, eight nine years. Um, I realized that actually the idea that 
with building agents that have fixed objectives is just the wrong, uh, the wrong way to think about AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely get to some of the problems with the standard model in due time. Following up on on this bounded optimality idea, and I do remember you had these four stages of rationality that kind of incrementally worked their way. The I guess the two things that you pointed out there that seem like the high level takeaways here are a the contextual framing of my my agent is not something I'm imagining to be rational simpliciter, but it exists within a set of constraints, namely the machine. And B, the other parameter of this bounded optimal agent is, as you said, the program, the thing that a designer can actually intervene on as opposed to individual actions. Where does meta-reasoning come into all of this? You had this theory and ideas of how, well, I can... um, think about the actual computational actions I'm supposed to take as opposed to just existing at the level of, of doing that computation. And that's certainly something we humans seem to do almost automatically. Could you tell me a little bit about your, your work there? Uh, sure. Um, so one of the things I did when I was a grad student uh, was working with Mike Genesereth, um on his uh, MRS um, which uh, actually stood for two different things at different times. Uh, but the relevant one is the meta-level reasoning system. So it, it was a logical reasoning system where uh, the reasoning process was implemented as a set of internal actions. Um, so you know, drawing a particular conclusion, adding a certain fact to the knowledge base, etc. cetera. Um, and then you could have a meta-level agent that could direct uh, the object level computations about, you know, where the object level computations are the reasoning steps about the world. Like, you know, if I, if I drop this glass, it's going to break. And then the, uh, the meta level could decide, uh, which object level computations to do. Um, and that's, that idea of meta level computation, uh, goes back to, you know, at least the 1970s. Um, but there was no theory of how the meta level should actually decide anything. Um, so you could try putting in various sort of meta level policies, um, which it, in some sense, that's what an algorithm is, right? So if you think about, for example, the alpha beta pruning algorithm, which is used for game playing, um, that's a meta level policy that that just says, okay, do not do this particular object level computation because it's guaranteed to be a waste of time, right? So do this, do this, but don't do that, do this, do this, not that. And, um, you know, and that works fairly well. Um, and it just seemed to me that uh, the right way to think about uh, meta level computation was again, to take a sort of agent view and say, um, okay, what do computations contribute to the overall goal of the agent, which is to maximize its utility? Uh, and in effect, what they contribute is you know, improvement in decision quality. And so you should decide what computations to do based on their 
expected improvement in decision quality. And, um, and I was, you know, still interested in game playing. And that was a good example where the object level computations are fairly simple, right? They all just expand a leaf node of the tree um, and, and add the successor states to the tree and then evaluate the successor states and then back up the values in the tree. Um, and so the question would be, well, which leaf node should I expand? And um, so instead of a sort of complicated algorithm like alpha, beta pruning and, and you know, innumerable variants and hacks and improvements on that, um, I just said, okay, we should just expand the leaf node such that we expect our decision quality to improve the most. And that's it, right? And then all you have to do is figure out, uh, you know, how do you quickly compute the expected improvement in decision quality that results from expanding a leaf node. So when you expand a leaf node, what could happen is the value of that node by looking at the successes could increase or decrease, right? And uh, you expect, you don't expect it to go one way or the other, but you expect it to change. Um, and, uh, and then you can sort of follow that back to the root and say, well, look, you know, even if we change this leaf node by, you know, plus or minus 50, um, because there's an alternative route you could take from the root, alternative path, um, it's actually not going to change your mind, right? So if, if there's no possibility that you're going to change your decision at the root, then there's no value to doing this computation. Right. And alpha beta pruning is just a special case of that assumption, actually. Um, whereas, you know, this more general way of thinking um, will tell you not, isn't just saying, well, the, val the value of expanding that leaf node is either zero or non-zero, right? It actually gives you a quantitative estimate, which allows you to rank which ones you should expand first. So you get a typically uh, a much deeper search tree along certain branches that are interesting and important to pursue. And then other branches where, for example, the move is obviously bad, it'll just stop doing anything, right? You won't even bother thinking about it because it's so clearly bad that there's no point in finding out exactly how bad it is. Um, and so you get search trees that are much narrower, much deeper. Um, and we showed that relative to alpha beta, at least up to a, up to a point, you got much more efficient search. Um, you know, I think we may be about 60 times more efficient in some of our experiments. And this, this, this approach, you know, the same algorithm, you know, can play backgammon, can do, you know, single agent, like finding routes through a complicated uh, obstacle course and all sorts of stuff, right? Uh, and that, I think that was a really important higher level point is that if you think about how a general intelligence system is going to work, um, when a new type of decision problem comes along, so let's say you go from, you know, ordinary two-player games to two-player games that include a dice, so you have chance nodes, right? You can't hire a PhD student to come along and invent a new algorithm and stick it into your head, right? You've got to have one mechanism for managing all the computational processes uh, in your brain. Um, and so this is a good candidate that you have meta-reasoning, you know, so general meta-reasoning capability that works uh, no matter what 
the nature of the underlying uh, decision problem is. You know, and, and we could even speculate about how the brain might implement that using, you know, spreading activation or something. You know, I don't know exactly what, but um, it, it, so it, it's a very rich um, area. And, uh, you know, there are implications for cognitive science. So one, one of the things we noticed um, was that, you know, suppose you have significant uncertainty about the value of two different actions, but you know that whatever the values are, uh, they're essentially the same, right? Because of, let's say, symmetry. Um, and we noticed in, so introspectively that humans have a hard time just sort of mentally tossing a coin and saying, you know what, it, does, it doesn't matter, right? I can't figure out which of these two is best, so I should just stop uh, thinking about it and, and get on and just do one of those things. Um, and then, you know, many years later, uh, a grad student of Tom Griffiths, uh, folk leader, started working on the question of, you know, could you train humans to actually do a better job of, uh, of their own meta-level control in, in that particular circumstance? So it, um, anyway, so, so that's meta-reasoning. And how does it fit in with bounded optimality is an interesting question. So I, I think you shouldn't think of meta-reasoning as the solution to bounded, you know, what a bounded optimal program should look like. Sure. Um, because, you know, under some circumstances, um, you know, meta-reasoning is an expensive luxury. Uh, and you should just, uh, you know, you just have to react, right? I mean, when you when you blink, you know, if if a fly flies towards your eye and your eye blinks, right? There's no meta reasoning going on, right? It's, it's not so. Is it, is it a good idea to blink? And okay, let me think about that. <laughs> right. Uh, it just blinks because you you know you need to blink, and um, you know that's why it's really hard to put eye drops in, right? Because you you stick you stick this thing towards your eye, and your eye says, "Okay, I'm blinking. Right? I'm going to close." Uh, even though you don't want to close your eye, it still happens. Um, so the way to think about it is that it's one possible agent architecture. Um, and within that class of agent architectures, you could you know, try to optimize the amount of meta-reasoning that happens or how, you know, how it's implemented, because you can't do meta-reasoning exactly. Right. I can't say, okay, what is the best computation that I should do next? Um, and the reason you can't do that is because computation itself is a sequential decision problem. So let's say you're playing chess with a sequential decision problem where you're going to make a hundred moves. Right. Um, but the computational problem of deciding what chess move to make, right. You might as you know, stockfish does, you might do a billion computations. Right, and then which billion computations you should do in which order, right? Way harder than playing chess, right? A much bigger state space, right? The state space is not the set of all board configurations; it's the set of all trees, where each tree has possibly millions or billions of leaves, and each of those is a board configuration. So you've got a vastly bigger state space and vastly longer solution sequences, and so. There's no chance that you could actually uh, have optimal meta reasoning. 
And I think that was something, so, so various other authors like I.J. Good had, had thought about something like bounded optimality, but they'd end, they sort of got stuck on this idea that, oh, well, we should compute optimally. And you can't, right? Because that creates a meta-meta level problem that's even more intractable to solve. And so you can't, you can't compute optimally. Um, but you can have, for example, an adaptive process, which over time adjusts its computational behavior to the environment and to the amount of resources that it has so that it is approximately bounded optimal. Um, and so that, uh, that's something that I think people are pursuing now. There's um, certainly a lot in there. And I guess there, there are certainly some natural analogs that you pointed out along the way in your answer of how we humans do our own little matter reasoning. So when I'm thinking about playing a game of chess, you also mentioned backgammon as a concrete application. Just the idea that, well, in my head, I'm thinking about possible moves to explore, possible responses my opponent might make. And I might think of one and be like, well, it would be incredibly stupid for my opponent to do that. And so it's just not really worth expanding that tree further, as it were. And yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, this applies to, to daily life. Mm -hmm. And and it's just remarkable. Uh, I mean, sometimes we do daydream, right? Which sort of means thinking about stuff that isn't relevant to, uh, to the actual problems we face. Um, but, uh, and, and this is an area I think that that's potentially very exciting are, are thinking about our lives and the decisions we make all the time is, is clearly hierarchical, right? That, you know, we say, oh yeah, today I'm going to do the podcast interview, right? And so I better get out of bed and, and so on. And, and then once, you know, once you're in the podcast interview, then you think about what to say uh, and so on. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, you're thinking about, okay, what am I doing this week? And okay, I'm going to England for Christmas. Uh, and uh, okay, when, I'm, when am I going to start writing my next book? And so on. So, you're, uh, you know, all the way down to, you know, the control signals that your brain is sending to your fingers as you type or to your uh, vocal apparatus as you speak, you know, so you're, you're thinking and controlling the computational processes across uh, many levels of abstraction in many different orders of magnitude of scale. And somehow it all just works seamlessly. And, uh, and that's very powerful. So, so because when you think at a higher level of, of abstraction, so I think a good example would be like taking a vacation. Well, so if you think about a, you know, a, a week-long vacation in terms of motor control signals, right, it's uh, billions of motor control signals. So if I started to say, okay, well, should I you know, move my left foot first or my right foot first when I go on vacation, right? No. You say, where am I going to go on vacation, right? Should I stay home? Should I go to Hawaii? Should I go to Tahiti, right? Mm -hmm. and that one high-level decision has a huge impact on the utility of your vacation. Okay, so because we can think at, at these higher levels of abstraction, that makes available computations that have extremely high value. 
right? Whereas if we could only think at the ground level of, well, you know, should I move my left foot or my right foot, right? Almost all computations would be useless. Mm -hmm. They don't add any value. Right. There's a, a sort of simplification or, or abstraction that occurs when we think about what actual concrete, explicit thoughts and activities we attend to. And there is something really fascinating about it, the way that we have these very intuitive notions of things being in space and time, for example, to the point where I don't have to think at such a granular level about what it means to take my pencil and put it over on the desk, for example. There's so much involved in that, not just my my motor system, but also where exactly is the desk and all of that. I just sort of perceive the thing. It's there. I have my object, the pencil, and I'm putting it on the desk. And there's not much that I think about at a more granular level. Right. Well, your, your brain is doing it, right? So your brain, your brain has to spit out tens of thousands of motor control commands right. in order for you to just move the pencil to the desk. And, and so, um, so I think was Whitehead, as in Russell and Whitehead, who, who said civilization advances by reducing complex operations to the trivial, uh, something that was effect. Uh, and I think that's, that's a, good, a good description of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. I think this is perhaps a good segue into the next section of time. So we've been discussing how our brains, while they do have to give millions of instructions, the explicit thoughts that exist in our head can more or less be at higher levels of abstraction. And one, one criticism of the recent years we've been seeing in terms of deep learning, we can look at for example, the consciousness prior ideas of how do we bring higher levels of abstraction to today's learning systems is that when I look at a convolutional neural network, for example, it is operating very much in the kind of ground level pixel space, which does make it possible for today's deep neural networks to pick up on spurious patterns because they're thinking more at the level of what are, what are the different pixels in this image? And this sort of divide we're seeing here, there's a lot of seeds that came a lot before. There were the connectionist and symbolic camps in terms of looking at how AI was to be done. And you yourself have said multiple times that deep learning itself is going to hit a wall and perhaps we'll see a shift back towards a more explicitly agent-focused perspective on AI as we've been talking about. Could you tell me just about how this recent rise in deep learning has struck you as a researcher and what you think about how some of those connectionist symbolic debates um, are really playing out today? Uh, so it's a very interesting question. Um, so I should probably back up a bit and, and talk about some, some of the work I did from sort of mid nineties to mid two thousands. Um, and uh, and that's basically trying to increase the expressive power of probabilistic modeling languages. Um, so so when Udipal dragged the AI community kicking and screaming into the probabilistic era, um, you know, he proposed base nets, which, well, you don't know if he, there were several people who had 
similar kinds of ideas, but I think he was the uh, the main uh, apostle of, of Basenets. So Basenets are very roughly speaking the probabilistic generalization of Boolean circuits. And nobody actually thinks the Boolean circuits are a good substrate for for anything really, uh, you know, except for very, very low level uh, kinds of, of uh, signal processing or uh, you know, ba basic operations in a computer, right? No one writes payroll systems using Boolean circuits, right? Um, we use programming languages um, and, you know, an AI over, you know, the first few decades, um, we said, okay, we want to have systems that know things and reason and plan with that knowledge and learn that knowledge from experience or from other people uh, through language and so on. So this, this concept of a knowledge-based system is in some ways the central uh, contribution, the key idea of, of classical AI. And um, so in order for that to work, it has to be expressive. Right. The language has to be expressive enough so that the stuff you, you need to know, you can know it uh, in a reasonable form. Right. And to give you an example, right, if I need to know the rules of chess, right, in first order logic, I can write the rules of chess in about a page. You know, same for Go. Right. In in circuits, it's you know hundreds of thousands or millions of pages. So it's just a complete non-starter as a hypothesis about how we know things, right? That we know them by having giant circuits that uh, that implement the appropriate function, right? It's just com right. a complete non-starter. Um, and uh, so what I was trying to do in the, in the 90s um, with people like Daphne Kohler and others, and, and you know, Joe, Joe Halpern, Cornell was working on this, and, and Fahim Bakas at Toronto, was how do we, um, how do we get the expressive power that we have in first order logic, right? Which lets us write things like, you know, the rules of chess very concisely. In fact, a whole bunch of common sense knowledge, uh, is, is easy to write down in first order logic. Um, how do we combine that with probability theory so that we get, uh, the ability to handle, you know, real uncertain information from sensor data, uncertainty about you know, the physics of the world and so on and so forth. Um, so, so we developed uh, various approaches. So, so Daphne and another undergrad student in my group, um, Abby Pfeffer uh, and David McAllister wrote the first um, probabilistic programming paper uh, in 97, um, you know, and, and their view was, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll combine ordinary programming languages with probability theory and get the expressive power that way. Um, I wanted a declarative language. So I wanted uh, a combination of probability theory with first order logic, which I developed with Brian Milch uh, and Hannah Prasula and a couple of other students. Um, David Sontag, who's now at MIT, is another one. Um, and so that became blog or the Bayesian logic language. And um, 
and and from there eventually you know now parabolistic programming is a, is a fairly big field you know with a couple of thousand papers a year being published and um you know we built some quite significant systems like the you know the monitoring global monitoring system for the nuclear test ban treaty uh is one example so that's you know running 24/7 in vienna uh detecting all the seismic events on the planet and classifying them um so so when i see deep learning which is just based on circuits i say well you know you're missing a basic point about expressive power um and so you know so what would you expect as a result you would expect that it requires uh you know enormous quantities of training data um because you know if you don't for example if you think about um the rules of chess right all eight of the pawns move the same way but you have any you've got no way of expressing all the pawns in a circuit right you have to in some sense write a circuit for each of the pawns somehow and then for each of the squares it can be on you got to right you can't say well you know everywhere between row 2 and row 7 it behaves the same way or so row 3 7 it behaves the same way and all the columns right um so you got to rewrite those rules for every square in theory if you're really insisting on just circuits you got to rewrite it for every time step and so on so you need in order to fill in all that stuff you need billions of training data uh, training examples and and that's exactly what we see right um that in some sense you're almost creating a lookup table rather than a you know simple generalized representation of the rules of chess and um and so that's the sense in which i think they're going to hit a wall you know and there's a, 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 you could sort of take an even more like you know non-technical common sense approach to this um you know it, it's is this is if i was to say okay here's how you know right go back to the late 19th century um and we want to you know create uh, an engine for that will drive cars right so here's how we're going to you know we'll we we'll call it the internal combustion engine for reasons we don't yet know and here's how we're going to do it we're going to take a big block of steel and we're going to run gradient descent <laughs> right and it's going to it's going to invent the internal combustion engine like well no it's not right i mean we did that in the 50s people said oh yeah you know we're going to create ai here's how we're going to do it we're going to we're going to take fortran programs and run evolutionary operations on them we're going to you know do crossover or mutation and they will, that will produce ai right? i mean theoretically yeah it's possible but you know it's just like saying yeah theoretically it's possible for all the oxygen atoms in in your room to move over to one side and for you to die of asphyxiation right yeah theoretically that's possible but it's astronomically unlikely um and it's just not uh, a plausible uh, tech uh, approach to the technology um so having said that you know what what's impressive about about the deep learning systems um which i guess we should have thought about i mean maybe we did think about it a long time ago but if you think about all the people working on machine learning who weren't doing deep learning systems right so people doing decision trees people doing linear regression 
logistic regression, uh, all that kind of thing, right? Decision trees give you sort of long and narrow. Linear regression gives you you know wide and shallow, right? But nothing gives you both wide and deep, right? Right. Uh, so, but complicated functions, especially from high dimensional inputs, have to be wide and deep. So you need you need some sort of hypothesis space that's wide and deep, um, and and so that's at a very high level what happened. Um, and once you have that, you now you've got a, a new toy, right? Which can which can do a lot of interesting things. I think the deep learning community has been extremely creative at finding ways to use that new toy, right? I mean, you know, things like style transfer, you know, here, take this photograph and re-render it as a Renoir, right? It's, uh, you know, sort of really interesting. And, um, and people are constantly dreaming up new ways to use this toy. Um, but on the other hand, uh, problems to which it's just not applicable at all. Um, you know, like, hmm, okay, we need, uh, we need to, to build billions of batteries for electric vehicles. So we need to design a gigafactory. Okay, great. Well, in AI, right, that was something that people worked on in the 70s, right? Literally designing factories from the ground up. Um, uh, and, and, you know, all the way through to the, the actual construction plan for, for building it. And, but if you said that to a deep learning person, their mouth would just drop open uh, and then they would just sort of go back. Yeah, but we're really good at looking at images. <laughs> right? I mean, this, and so a vast range of problems that are interesting and important are simply, you know, airbrushed out of existence. Um, because there's absolutely nothing that deep learning can contribute uh, to them. Um, so, so I, I think the right answer is not that you know we, the pendulum swings back and we stop doing deep learning. We go back and just pursue all the same routes that we were pursuing before. Um, I think the answer is that the. You know, which is how it always happens, right? The, the deep learning people um, start adopting some of the ideas of, of classical AI about you know how you decompose an agent into different uh, different subparts and how those subparts communicate with each other, and then then they'll just say, well, we're still just doing deep learning, and then <laughs> you know the, the more you know the more classically trained people will say, yeah, well you know we'll find ways to put deep learning into various of the component interfaces and the perceptual part and, and so on and so forth. And say, yeah, we're still doing classical AI. They'll end up with, in, in some sense, identical systems, but they'll just think about them in different ways. You know, so I look at, if you look at Waymo, for example, so actually the whole, the whole self-driving car uh, area is really interesting and, and some of it's proprietary. So I, I, I don't know everything that's been going on, but. For sure, there were groups that said, um, okay, we'll just do, you know, end-to-end -end deep learning. That's how we're going to build our agent. So it's still an agent. It's still taking percept sequences and generating actions. But, you know, just like the big block of steel and the internal combustion engine, 
we're just going to make a big block of circuit and it's going, we're going to train it end to end to be a good driver. Um, and I don't think that worked at all. I mean, I remember having this discussion with the Uber guys when they were just starting out. I said, look, if you take that approach, you're just going to kill people. Um, and that's what they did. So, uh, and then they stopped. So, and, and what Waymo did initially was actually even more old-fashioned AI than I would have recommended. Right? So, hmm. um, so they had a perceptual layer that uh, was based on, you know, uh, trained deep learning recognizers for pedestrians and road signs and where you are on, on the road relative to the markings and so on, um, and the other vehicles. And then they output from that essentially logical assertions, right? So it was actually pretty similar to, um, to the shaky robot from 1971 at SRI, right? So it actually it outputs sort of logical assertions, right? There is a pedestrian at, at you know, 17, 13, 8, right? And there is a, another car, you know, and here's the bounding box and this is, right? So definite logical assertions. And then they had rules, logical rules of the 1970s, what we call production system, which is basically uh, a set of if-then rules where the if part is a, you know, could be an arbitrarily complex logical expression. And then the then part is whatever action the system should take. You know, so if I'm in the middle lane and there's a car to the left and a pedestrian to the right and the traffic light is yellow and blah, 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 then stop. And they ran out of rules all the time. So they would find, you know, every day. So, so Astro Teller, who used to run Google X back when this is part of Google X, um, said that, you know, the engineers would come back at the end of the day and said, oh, you know, well, we came to a traffic circle and there was a little girl riding her tricycle the wrong way around the traffic circle and we didn't have a rule for that so the car didn't know what to do right and then and the next day will be another story and next day will be another story and then they realized that yeah you can't ever write a set of rules that covers all circumstances well you know no big surprise there right same problem in chess you can't write a bunch of rules saying what move to make uh, that will cover all the possible board states that you could ever get into in a game, right? How do we do it instead? You go back to first principles. You say, well, here are the actions I could take and here's how the, the world would respond and here's what I would do then and here's what I would do then, here's what I would do then. You look forward through action sequences from you and from the world uh, and then you choose the best one. Um, you do that with driving as well, which as long as you, you see, now, now you need two things. You need you know, models, because you can't predict forward without models. Um, you need to keep track of other behaviors and model intent of the other drivers and, and so on. And you need an evaluation function, right? You can't, you can't just say, do this. You have to be able to compare the desirabilities of different courses of action. Um, and so then you're very much back in the classical AI way of thinking, the model-based ahead deliberative system with a with an evaluation function it's just a little more difficult because it's you know it's parabolistic and continuous mm -hmm. and, uh, and so on yeah and and the objective is less clear <laughs> <laughs> very true um i think this will be a good segue but if i can just comment a moment on some of what you were saying i i do share some of your intuitions about the limitations you express about deep learning. And I, I share that intuition that there's a lot of what's going on that very much feels like a lookup table. But 
at the same time, it's, I guess, just worth mentioning there does seem to be something kind of fascinating and nuanced occurring in these networks, especially when trained at scale, that I think has been coming up in some of the foundational work that's been done on deep learning recently. So if we look at, for example, Christopher Manning's work, looking at how they found these universal grammatical relations in multilingual BERT, yes, the sample efficiency is pretty bad, but after the massive scale pre-training it's undergone, it is able to pick up on things that look like aspects of you know, universal grammatical relations, things that kind of came out of Chomsky. And it's able to, for example, distinguish between pre-nominal and post-nominal adjectives, which is pretty interesting. And so I, I do agree with you that there are definitely significant limitations, but it, it does feel like when they do get trained to scale, yes, sample efficiency is pretty bad. Yes, there's a lot of lookup table memorization stuff occurring, but there is something really interesting there. And certainly we don't understand all of it, which is a problem in its own right that also deserves a lot of work. But mm-hmm. there, there's definitely something nuanced and interesting going on in there, I think. Yeah, I, I think that um, in, in many cases, you can get effective generalization sort of without going all the way to the full expressive power of programming languages or first order logic. And um, you know, if, if, if you said to somebody, okay, uh, write a, you know, PCFG parser, so probabilistic context-free grammar parser, they could do that in a programming language, right? You could do that in Python, you know, it's like 75 lines of Python or something, not, not a huge problem. Right. And if I said to them, okay, do it with a circuit instead, they would be lost, Right. But, you know, one solution is, oh, well, okay, then, you know, implement a Python interpreter using the circuit and then write 70 to 75 lines of Python, right? That's probably unnecessary, right? There there are ways of getting the degree of generalization that that PCFGs support um, using circuit implementations. We just don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that um, that the deep learning circuits are actually figuring out those sort of ingenious circuit designs um, that give you some of the same types of generalization. Um, you know, for example, that there are ways of thinking about, you know, the, the, the vector space representation of words as essentially sort of a symbol lookup table. Uh, and having a simple lookup table is that's one of the key components of an interpreter for a programming language, if you think about it. Um, so, uh, so I think that's interesting. I just think it's it's a weird way to go about it, right? Because we've done uh, you know decades and decades of of deep mathematical research trying to understand logic, well, thousands of years on logic, uh, decades of work on programming languages, and so on, and and throwing it all away uh, doesn't seem like a good strategy. Um, the other thing that uh, you know I find interesting and again potentially exciting is the difference between what seems to be happening in uh, just object recognition deep learning. So you know you're, you, you make your 
80 layer ResNet and you, and you train it on ImageNet data. And it's not at all clear that it's actually recognizing the objects in any sense. And, and there's some evidence that actually it, it's often not even looking at the object at all, right? It's just learned that that particular type of dog always sits on this particular color of carpet. And so it just finds that color carpet and says, okay, then it's definitely an orange terrier. Right. Right. Without even looking at the dog at all. Um, and similarly, you know, if there's, if there's enough blue sky in the right places and it must be a parachute, um, or in the case of, you know, CIFAR 10, right. If there's one, if this one pixel is gray, it's definitely an aircraft, right? Literally one pixel is all it uses to, to make that classification. Um, so whereas if you look at what's happening with the, the text and image models, right. Um, it seems pretty clear that they're in some sense pausing the images correctly because they're able to reassemble components of those images into new images in, in the right way. So they're, they're clearly, you know, if it's the panda, right. What was that? That was, I just saw the Chinese one, a uh, handsome panda riding a motorcycle. It's not a brilliant image, but clearly it's pulled the panda out of the panda images. It's pulled the motorcycle out of the motorcycle images. It's put them together in the right way with the right occlusion. And so it, it it's clear that there is approximately the right type of analysis of the image going on. Why? Again, we don't we have don't know. Sure. Um, but that's that's sort of interesting and exciting. Um, and I just wish we had better forensic methods of understanding uh, of understanding how they work. Yeah, yeah. It, it does seem like there's a lot of good work going on on that front. I know Chris Ola's work at Anthropic, for instance, has been looking at mechanistic interpretability. I realize we're very much running up against time here. Maybe just for a very quick two-minute thing, because I want to make sure we have time to talk about your current research agenda a little bit. You wrote this wonderful book, Human Compatible Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. And we've been pointing out this a little bit earlier, but you have found problems with the standard model of AI in that an agent knows what its objective is, chases after it. And there's certainly a lot of debate on this front between people who, like you, are looking at the long-term problem of superintelligence, general intelligence, and what risks it could pose, and others who are more like, well, we need to be thinking about short-term problems, and these long-term problems are more or less a waste of time. You do respond to a lot of the kind of common objections in your book. So perhaps just as a, as a short take on this, could you maybe stalemate that side? Give me what you think is the strongest argument against the long-termist perspective and maybe a quick summary of why you think it's so important to be thinking about these problems right now. Honestly, I... I, I... I, I don't think there are any strong arguments against the, the long-term perspective. Um, so let me be completely clear. It's this idea that it's sort of either or, right? Either you work on short-term problems or you work on long-term problems and there isn't enough brain power in the world to do both, right? And this is just ridiculous. Like saying, well, you know, climate is really important, so we should stop working on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's just, it's a bonkers form of argument. 
you know, climate is important, but I'm not a climate scientist. So I, you know, I work on AI and I think, you know, the, you know, the, the characteristics of the long-term problem in AI are in some sense worse than for climate, right? In, in climate, you know, the vast majority of the world understands that there is a major problem, but we just, you know, there's a, there's a small subset, the fossil fuel industry, that's very influential and keeps pushing us to not solve the problem and so on. Whereas in AI, right, the vast majority of the field is just focused on how do we create uh, more and more capable AI systems. And, uh, and you know, I began um, back in the first edition of the textbook saying, what if we succeed? Um, and I think to those who say it's not worth thinking about, I would say, well, then why are we investing hundreds of billions of dollars and, and hundreds of thousands of people's lives and minds into something where if we actually succeed in it, uh, the outcome could be arbitrarily bad uh, for the human race, right? So what, you know, I could sort of just put the question back on that one. So what's your plan for when we succeed? Uh, you know, how, how do you propose to control systems that are far more powerful than human beings forever? Right? Uh, and, and so that's, um, that's why I think it's important for at least some people uh, to put a lot of thought into this. Um, and so the thought that I put into this so far, you know, I, I tend to agree with various others like, like Bostrom and, and Yudkowsky and, uh, and so on uh, with, um, and Steve Omohundro with his um, basic AI drives paper and so on, that um, the core of the problem is, is misalignment, right? The idea that uh, if we design AI systems that have fixed objectives that are assumed to be correct uh, and they pursue them with greater and greater intelligence, um, that almost certainly, and certainly in all cases so far, uh, those objectives are not complete and correct representations of the preferences of the human race for its own future. And, uh, and so when you have misalignment, the outcome is arbitrarily bad. And, you know, and so, so what I realized back in, I guess, 2013 was, okay, you need AI systems that know that they don't know what the objective is. And that's the only way forward. Or you could think of it the other way, right? They, in some sense, they know that the objective is, you know, the furtherance of human preferences about the future, um, but they don't know what those preferences are. And, and that creates a whole new class of problems. And in some sense, it's just a, it's a strict generalization of everything we've done so far, right? Everything we've done so far assumes that the objective is exactly known, right? And just as happened in the 80s when we sort of finally accepted uncertainty, uh, uncertainty in the state, uncertainty about the transition model, right? There's uncertainty about the objective. Uh, and that particular type of uncertainty is really interesting and, and has different technical 
consequences from other types of uncertainty. Um, but uh, it's still something that we can make progress on. Uh, we can still design algorithms that behave rationally when they don't know what the objective is. And roughly speaking, right, the, they have an incentive to learn more about the objective. They have an incentive to uh, behave carefully so they don't mess up parts of the world that they're not sure you want messed up in that particular way. Um, they have an incentive to, uh, to be sort of deferential to humans because the you know, human commands or prohibitions are expressions of preference uh, that presumably the machine was previously unaware of. And so it's natural that they would defer to those. Um, and we showed that, you know, the, in the extreme case, uh, machines designed this way will want to be switched off if that's what humans want to do. And so there's still a long way to go, but it seems like qualitatively this, this step um, may be the core of the answer to the control problem in the long term um, and opens up huge new areas of, of uh, basic AI research um, to, to make it work. And if all goes well, uh, there's an NSF program in the works uh, and if that comes to fruition, you know, there'll be a, a big NSF funded uh, research program next year uh, mm -hmm. to make this happen. Absolutely. Well, I, I wish we had more time to go into all of the gory details of this, but I do think this was a really good summary. And there are plenty of other places where I think our listeners can learn more about the particular problems you're solving. So perhaps to wrap, wrap up, Professor Russell, I do want to say, First of all, thank you for everything you've done to bring just the basics of AI to so many people, as well as your current work, trying to explain the, the problem of control to so many people. It was really an honor speaking to you today. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.